You know, there's a phenomenon today of folks that are in politics, folks that are in leadership positions in, in, in faith-based systems, um, people that are in education, in, especially in corporate structures, you've seen this a lot lately, mm-hmm. where somebody who's in diversity, equity, inclusion training, or someone at the very top of an organization or a seminary, let's say, or university, uh, pushes a concept really far. Um, let's say, like years ago, I especially could see this like in between the, the years of around 2013 to about 2018, uh, especially with critical race theory, intersectionality, concepts of systemic oppression, systemic everything. Um, and then all of a sudden, folks seem to pull back and then reintroduce or to find a, a safer path or whatever the case may be. And um, this is something that I've seen consistently now for you know, many, many years. But really there's a name to this technique. It's not just a question of pushing and then hiding. Um, what exactly do we call this again? Yeah, this is the this is the the tech. It's a rhetorical strategy or a, a rhetorical principle known mm. as Mott and Bailey, mm. and so that name was given it to by given to it by a philosopher named Nicholas Shackle, uh, in a paper in 2005. It's really a stunning paper mm. called "The Vacuity of Postmodern Methodology," um, and he lays out this idea. It's really, a, you know, it's a strategy of equivocation, as you mm-hmm. said. You know, people are have, have, have a, they push the idea really far and then they can retreat back to something more defensible. That's the general idea, you know, if somebody asks them questions or pushes them on it and say, oh, no, we just mean, that's the way you'll usually see it phrased. You know, what, what are you actually doing here? Oh, we ju- it's just this. It's just, it's just racial sensitivity training, for example, against, say, critical race theory. Mm-hmm. You, see, you see this kind of pattern play out, and this is called a Mott and Bailey is as Shackle described it. So you have to understand that Mott and Bailey is as a physical metaphor mm. that he used, but um, of, of a type of castle. We'll, we'll get that in a second, but he's, he starts out by describing this other concept in this paper called Trolls Truisms, mm. which roughly around the same time, within plus or minus a few years, another philosopher, Dan Dennett um, from Tufts, was calling these things deepities, which is a cute word. I think an eight-year-old or something said it when he described it at a dinner. Uh, the deepities, they're deep, but they're not deep, so they're right. deepities. And so the idea is that you have some fantastic falsehood that trades along with a uh, trivial truth or a truism, so trolls truism. So for Shackle, it was a person who's kind of trolling the situation. So there's your troll and he's spouting truisms things that just anybody would agree with. And then he says that the, the troll's truism situation sets up a natural Mott and Bailey. And in the paper, being that it's about the vacuity, as he says, of postmodern methodology, he actually just says that the entirety of postmodern philosophy boils down to a kind of a language game that is a Mott and Bailey rhetorical strategy. And so what happens is to understand, you know, it's, it's kind of helpful we have this fire pit in front of us because it's sort of like the beginning of a Mott so a Mott mm-hmm. and a Bailey, it's kind of a defensive castle arrangement that you might have had in, you know, medieval feudal times. And so you might have, you know, a square mile or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. I, I, a lot of times I tell people about the Lord of the Rings and the Polenor fields or whatever it is that outside of Minas Tirith. And you have the defensible tower, but then you have this huge, great area of farmland, you know, and you mm-hmm. might and then they have the, the, the outer wall. Uh, so it would be either a, a small outer wall or a ditch that would be dug in the middle of mm-hmm. this, this farmland or this village area, the bailey as it's called, there would be a mound and on the mound they would build a 
castle in the sense of like the chess piece. It looks mm -hmm. very much like the rook or the castle chess piece that's almost impregnable. You don't really want to live in it. It's going to be dark. It's going to be dank. It's probably, I think Nicholas Shackle describes it as being insalubrious. It's mm. an insalubrious place, but it's virtually perfectly defensible. And so you mm. could get in that, you could rain down rocks or arrows or whatever if people tried to conquer. And so what he says is you have this ditch around the desired land, the Bailey's the desired land. Mm. You have this ditch around it. So it's lightly defended, lightly defensible. But if there's a real press, the, the, the ditch isn't going to stop people or the moat or a small wall or a hill or something like that, you know, a border hill isn't going to stop people. And so all of a sudden everybody can run from the Bailey and gather in the Mott. Right. And they're in a highly impregnable castle now mm. and they can rain down arrows and rocks and boiling oil or whatever mm. weapons they had at their disposal to wait out the siege and get the marauders or whatever to go away, at which point they can then come back out into the Bailey and occupy the desired land again. So he mm. puts this in rhetorical, in a, in a rhetorical frame by saying, well, there are certain arguments that people want to advance right. that are very lightly defensible. Mm -hmm. You know, on maybe the very most superficial first blush, you can defend them. Mm -hmm. But if you get any deeper than the most superficial layer, you can't defend them. So it's, it's like the ditch. And then there's this really, you know, desired rhetorical or, or activist or whatever position you want to push and that's the Bailey territory. But as soon as you say, hey, wait, you know, what's going on here? Let's get into the details. Ah, oh, we just mean, and they can retreat into this highly defensible position of the Mott. So, you know, I just brought up a great example of that, which is to say, you know, we could go full-blown critical race theory, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in our federal agencies, you know, all this training. Right. And then they say, no, 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 we just mean racial sensitivity training. We just mean diversity training. And of course, President Trump got hit with that. Right. exact thing in the presidential debate, I think the first one with, with Joe with Biden, Biden in, yeah. last year, when he was asked, why, Chris Wallace asked him, why do you want to cancel diversity training or racial sensitivity training, whichever one he named it, and the media played this game all around him. But the thing is, is that operates on this false assumption that there's only really one way to do right. racial sensitivity uh, or, or diversity, or, you know, enhancement or whatever, or caring about diversity, and that it's through critical race theory. So, oh, well, we really want to indoctrinate people with critical race theory. That's their Bailey. And then somebody says something to them, and whoosh, into the mott they go, they hide in the castle, and they have this very defensible thing. No, 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 we just want racial sensitivity. We just care about diversity. We just want social justice, as opposed to, you know, right. complete reprogramming of society uh, along this, this ideological line or whatever the, the thing is. And we see this happen again and again and again. Or, or even like they, they, they throw out a, a syllogistic argument then at that point where they would say something like, well, are you telling me that, that you don't see systemic oppression ever occurring in the history of our country? Are you saying that you haven't seen um, racism occur in, in the, the, the foundation of our, of our laws and so forth over the history of the last three or 400 years in Western civilization? Mm -hmm. Are you saying that you haven't seen colonization you know, as opposed to well, what's actually happening now? And no, we're not saying that. So why are you even asking the question? Or you're just a racist and a white supremacist who wants to Correct. maintain your, yeah. That's getting inside the mott and then shooting the arrows down to try to drive people right. off. And so you can really see what's going on here. So, you know, for Nicholas Shackle, what he points out in the paper is that once people are aware of that this strategy is occurring, hmm. he says it's fatal to their argument because people, once they realize that there's a bait and switch, if you will, or an equivocation more right. uh, accurately occurring, 
then they, they don't trust the person pulling the stunt. Mm -hmm. And his argument is the whole of post postmodernism as one example is trading in this regard. And in fact, it does it on the concept of truth, which right. we could talk at length about how postmodernism has a relationship to truth, but ultimately it argues, just to make it very brief, that truth is a socially constructed artifact because mm. people are the ones doing it, and certain people become experts through some process that's ultimately political. So their proclamations about what truth are, that's ultimately the result of a political process. So politics is all it is. So truth becomes power, or knowledge becomes power. And Michel Foucault explicitly said that you cannot possibly liberate truth from power because truth is power. He actually wrote that. Um, and so you, they have this whole idea, oh, well, truth is just a social construct. Therefore, and this is your Bailey territory, it could have been constructed differently. Mm -hmm. It could be constructed completely different. We could have other ways of knowing. Right. We can have other knowledges. We could have racial knowledges, for example. We could have cultural knowledges. And the methodologies that we've honed over the past several hundred years, following from the various stages of the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and so on, the Reformation in, in um, religious circles, in, the, in Christianity I sp should sp specify, those methodologies for somebody following this line of thought that Foucault really mm. articulated, oh well they're just playing a power game, they're just messing around with power, they're just asserting power because they've been given the authority, mm. they've been authenticated as the authorities to get to say that. And so for them, oh well truth could just be completely reconstructed some other way, we could have a completely different cultural milieu or construct that allows us to have a different view of knowledge and different view of truth and thus different application of power. And so the idea that any of these methodologies point to something real right. is removed. And so there's your exciting falsehood. We can reconstruct truth however we want. And that's where they want to be because then they can create, right. as I've called them, following Joseph Piper, pseudo-realities in which people have to participate where they have all of the advantage, all of the power. Uh, they're not real descriptions of realities. And um, it's trading off of, though, a very banal truism that, yeah, because we express our ideas in language and we have a social consensus about what words mean or what words will mean in particular contexts. For example, in the scientific context, are usually very precise. We're not screwing around with, you know, what words mean when we get into the scientific context. It's very precise. So because there's these social processes, language, you know, expertise, right. methodology, the derivation of methodology, mm. all of a sudden, you know, they're saying, oh, well, those are social processes. And this is, this is, this is a boring truism. It doesn't, it doesn't magically transform mm. the, whether it's, you know, scientific method or whether it's rigorous philosophy, whether it's exegesis, whether it's logic, whether whatever, these methodologies happen to be in different disciplines, different fields. It doesn't transform them into arbitrary. So the Bailey is arbitrary, the Mott is, oh, well, we just mean people are involved in the, pro the, mm -hmm. the process of producing knowledge and those people have political interests or biases or whatever else. And so you can see that the, and so for Nicholas Shackle, this, that particular equivocation, mm -hmm. That particular Mott and Bailey is the essence of postmodernism. Right. And you just don't see it in what they, they seek to achieve in the here and now with some concept or idea now. It's also something that they do historically in terms of deconstruction as well. So yeah, So when sure. they're looking back, so. Well, I mean, if you, I mean, if we want to go into deconstruction in particular, I, you know, I'm assuming we're going to tip toward Derrida. Um, you know, Derrida was looking at words. Mm. He was doing these linguistic, deconstruction is a linguistic phenomenon for Derrida. Mm -hmm. uh, Foucault did not, 
I don't think directly do deconstructions himself, but people have derived a deconstructive process off mm. of Foucauldian thought that is referred to as a Foucauldian deconstruction. But with Derrida, he was looking at words and the way that language, words have meanings in relationship to one another. And that he believed that there were, that there were hierarchical arrangements between certain words and the meanings of certain words, for example, man and woman. Right. And so, you know, you can't understand the, you, if we didn't have men and women, we wouldn't have words for men and women. We would just have one word, man or whatever it is. And so clearly those words exist in some relationship to one another. And for him, you know, he had this concept that he locked onto, which is what he called thalagocentrism or is Thalism, called, yeah. yeah, which is that the male, that's the phallus, is put primary and er, centered. Uh, in terms of the way that words are organized. It's also for, you know, the queer theorists today, the male, the cisgender, the straight, etc. these kinds of terms that they throw around, those things are centered versus the other thing being subordinate. So heterosexual versus homosexual. You wouldn't have those words mm -hmm. if there wasn't some power relationship between them, if one didn't define the other and uh, existing in that pair. And so what a deconstruction was, was to either pick out the absurdity within that to make mm. it look ridiculous or to flip the power dynamic over. This is usually called strategic essentialism when it trades off of uh, mm. essentialized characteristics of groups. Uh, for example, that's Gayatri Spivak's take off of Derrida uh, there. She translated Derrida, so she was familiar with mm -hmm. Derrida. Um, so what that would be then is, well, you have two options. It's to deconstruct the idea that that hierarchical structure to the words means anything at all. And the, or the other is, let's maintain the binary and flip it over. Mm. And those are both types of deconstruction that can be done. So you're, you're deconstructing the power either by dissolving it or you're deconstructing the alleged power in the language by reversing it as a so-called act of strategic resistance. You hear mm -hmm. these kinds of things all the time um, from kind of social justice oriented people. Uh, and so a lot of deconstruction does proceed in this manner where there's, you know, the idea that, oh yeah, words exist in relationship to one another. This is mm -hmm. the heart of deconstruction. And there are sometimes, you know, some word is favored over another. For example, you know, heterosexual is statistically far more common. Mm -hmm. um, just to, to leave it at that, Homosexuality is statistically far less common. Therefore, there's a, a normativity to heterosexuality. So there's heteronormative society. So then there's this belief that language is constructed heteronormatively, that then that might have to be deconstructed so that people who are not in the heteronormative power structure, which they would claim is generated by language, uh, can feel accepted or included, not excluded. And the thing is, is all of this is the same. This is all the same kind as what we were just talking about. It's the same kind of um, very expansive uh, Bailey kind of desired position, which is, oh, well, if these things are actually socially constructed by how we use language and how we've put words together, then why not put words together in a different way? Mm -hmm. So the entire social constructivist thesis is, an, is a huge um, Mott and Bailey because the Mott is social construction is total, or sorry, the Ma is social constructions happen and the Bailey is social constructions are the totality mm -hmm. of what we're operating in and therefore they're also arbitrary. Therefore we can question everything down to the very foundations, take everything apart to the very foundations and if we want, rebuild them upside down as it might be said mm -hmm. or in some other postmodern way that has to be held up by magic where the magic spell here is linguistic. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, wizards, it's, it's, it's linguistic magic. 
um, that does it or something that, that allows people, again, in Joseph Piper's language, to enter into this pseudo-real mm. environment, a, a false reality. I think a distorted reality is a better way to, mm. to, to portray this. But the Mott and Bailey is, again, how this works because you, you push them on the, it's like how, how they get away with it is the Mott and Bailey. You say, well, yeah, some stuff is socially constructed. Our words are in some sense arbitrary. We could talk in Spanish, for example, or we could talk in Chinese, which even has very different grammar to it. And you know, that's gonna, so there is some arbitrariness to our language and maybe it does influence the way that we think. It's suggested, for example, that the Greeks and the Germans were so good with systematic philosophy. It's the argument for the reasonable person. Right. Sure. Right. Be, there, there's something to this. Right. There's something to this. But this is a far cry right. from, oh, well, if we just assert a sentence like trans women are women, that it makes it so by making that the new normative thing. That's that's Bailey territory right. that can't be defended. And then you say, well, you can't just speak stuff like this into existence. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't change reality by how you talk about reality. And they say, oh, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. You know, it's just that it's just that knowledge and what we think of ourselves as, whether it's gender or sex or whatever, is socially constructed. And social construction is it occurs everywhere. You know, like cultural construction of gender. Look how people in this culture and that culture, men and women, they dress differently. From one, right. And so they can retreat to this very defensible position. And again, the whole game is the same game. Mm -hmm. In fact, I defer back to Nicholas Shackle, and I think that this is partly true but not total, is that once you understand the game, if you're savvy, the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. It's fatal to their argument. Now the problem is, is they keep making their argument, so it doesn't, it doesn't tell you really in a practical sense what you have to do about it which is more complicated. Like, how do you deal with peddlers of pseudo-reality right. who, when you then push them, retreat to something that people identify or say is, yeah, that's, that's sort of true. Yeah, right. Okay, I see what you mean. Right. I mean. These are the kinds of, I'm trying to like give people phrases that they might notice in themselves. That, right. Oh, we just mean, or, right. oh, I see what you mean. But, you know, if you catch yourself in those feelings or you hear somebody saying, it's just that. Right then all of a sudden we're, you, you gotta like put your fox ears up and think, you know, am I, am I dealing with a Mott and Bailey? And if you are, my suggestion would be that you immediately need to be distrustful mm -hmm. and to realize that there's probably two positions and the one that they say after it's just is not what they really mean. They don't just want to have racial education in schools, in your K through 12 schools. They don't just want to be able to teach the history of the Holocaust or of the the massacre in Tulsa or whatever. They don't want to, they just, don't just want to teach these things. They don't just want to teach, you know, American history about slavery or Jim Crow. They want to teach it in a particular way. And there's your Bailey. Right. They want to do this. They want to do something very much more specific. Um, and that thing has to also, you have to become aware when this is occurring so that you can identify both. Right. And I do have a strategy for fighting this, which I've called stealing their Mott and bombing their Bailey. Mm. So the idea of the Mott and Bailey, to go back to the castle structure, is they can go inside the Mott and they can rain rocks and arrows down on you till you go away. So I think, take their Mott first. You know, mm -hmm. why not just take their Mott, go into their Mott, enter their Mott, rain arrows down on their Bailey, chase them out of the field. They want to occupy, get them out, chase them out. And the way you do that is you under, you have to understand the argument that the, the, the defensible position is making. You have to be able to articulate what it is and you have to be able to articulate the truth in it, the partial truth, right. the fertile fallacy, the truth, the kernel of truth right. in the fertile fallacy 
accurately and well enough to convince an audience that you understand it better than they can if you can, mm -hmm. that's stealing their mod. And then you also have to say, but I know what you want to do with this. Right. You don't want to have merely education about slavery or Jim Crow or segregation in schools. You want to teach people that the founding of America was intrinsically racist and it established a system in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution that has perpetuated in, uh, racism from the beginning that's in, in, totally endemic to the system and that cannot be removed short of a total revolution that actually rejects those founding documents and the principles, you know, the earlier philosophical principles upon which they were, were founded. The entire mm -hmm. tradition being thrown out right. and replaced with this new thing, that's the real objective. And of course you have to, I've said what it is, but you, the more of it you can articulate and the more clearly, the more well, the more accurately you're gonna be able to bomb their Bailey and, and, and take them out of, out of the position. That's the only response I know is expose that this is happening and then flip it over on them by making the argument for reality better than they are and simultaneously comparing that against the other side of their equivocation. In other words, they want to equivocate and you have to de-equivocate. You have to take both sides of the position well and argue them both because you're dealing with people who are playing linguistic slippery games and occupying pseudo-reality as a matter of fact. Hmm. Where can you give me two examples of where you have seen this in real world? And let's try to find it in two different categories or two different areas or affinities. Where So besides like you, just gender and race as topics, you mean well, like, like places? Actual real uh, real time uh, situations where you've seen this done? Well, I mean, obviously the example of the schools that I just gave should resonate with a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, the educational program is extraordinarily uh, significant. Right. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement is another one. The entire movement, mm -hmm. because you have this extraordinarily defensible position that you can retreat to. We're just saying that black people's lives matter. Of course. Which is of course. Right. Of course. And it's, it's not impossible, unfortunately, but it's difficult to find people who disagree with this proposition. But then the Black Lives Matter organization and movement has very different agendas. So when you say the phrase, the three word phrase, which is, you know, homophonic with, it sounds exactly the same as the, you know, statement, the black people's lives matter. Uh, you all of a sudden are also endorsing this movement to a degree. You're, you are engaging in their brand identification and their agenda is very different. You know, you have what's it, Patrice Cullors coming out and saying we're trained Marxists and you know, they start describing who their intellectual influences are and what they want. We just had the expose uh, recently that you know, they felt like they, Patrice Cullors again, wanting her book to be regarded like Mao's little red book. Mm -hmm. um, wonderful uh, little expose there. So they have a very different agenda. You know, it was on their website for a while that they're gonna demolish the family, etc. Now they have this new list of demands on their website. These are very radical demands. They are not compromising demands. It's true that their, their ideology is steeped deeply in neo-Marxism. They speak about that through the idea of black liberation, uh, which was infused with neo-Marxism by Herbert Marcuse taking up the liberationist cause and blending those things together. There's an identifiable chain of people, Marcuse to Angela Davis, to the black feminists, mm. to people like Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, writing about it and mapping the margins, citing Angela Davis and mapping the margins. You have this right. identifiable trail from neo-Marxism to critical race theory being that connects the dots all the way through 
to the current Black Lives Matter movement. So there's a Mott and Bailey with Black Lives Matter for a second example. So we got schools, we got Black Lives Matter. You're gonna see this in you know churches, you, and you'll see it in companies in kind of the same way. We just want to, you know, we want to hear out our people of other, or diverse voices or whatever more clearly. Diversity, in fact, and inclusion are Mott's and Bailey's in that regard too. What do they really want with hearing out there are, are, you know, more diverse voices or our black brothers and sisters you might hear. Well, the thing is, is if you, of course we want to listen to people. Of course we want to understand that people might have a different experience of life and there might actually be some issues that appear in subtle or even like broad systemic flavored yep. ways. I want to hesitate around the word systemic because there's a very specific meaning and I don't want to fall into my own Mott and Bailey problem right, here. Right, right, right. What they actually mean though is, it, they can say this, and of course we want to go along with that. There's your Mott, your very defensible position. Well, what's the Bailey? The Bailey actually for say diversity and hearing diverse voices. So if you hear this in your church or your company, it's about bringing diverse voices, diverse perspective, diverse expertise. Well, under the ideology of the so-called woke ideology, people are using critical social justice theory, you might call it, or just theory, is the doctrine of structural determinism. This is court, for example, to critical race theory, that the structure of society, meaning the systems, this is why I was hesitant around systemic racism, systems like racism or white supremacy, systems like patriarchy, systems like heteronormativity that I referred to before, etc., create a deterministic outcome for people in the oppressed groups, um, oppressed by those so-called systems or power dynamics. And so, because they have this structurally deterministic view that grants them, as critical race theory phrases, a unique voice of color. Right. And that unique voice of color is only authentic, again, another specifically used word where they're equivocating between the normal meaning and the specific meaning, when it is informed by a critical consciousness of, the, of that mm -hmm. system of power and its impacts. Well, the only people who produce that are the critical theorists. So in this case, critical right. race theorists are the only people who have the authentic voice of color. So this is why, for example, when, when you saw, I know it's we're diverging from the church or the business, but when Kanye West, I dragged this example up a million times, he put on the Make America Great Again hat and he said, I think for myself, they replied, Ta-Nehisi Coates replied with, you're not black anymore. Right. Which. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project, the New York Times Magazine, clarified for us in a tweet she deleted, which was, <laughs> there's a difference between being racially black and politically capital B black. Right. There's a difference. And what they say, when they say diversity, what they actually mean, Mott and Bailey, what they actually mean, it's not about just hearing different voices or bringing in different expertise. It's about bringing in people who have a critical consciousness. In other words, critical, whether it's race or otherwise, critical theorists. In other words, neo-Marxists of some stripe or another, or people who, who have dived into this very lived experience-based version that's in postmodern informed the woke ideology, if you will. So mm -hmm. it's about bringing in woke activists. Right. Under the guise of diversity, there's a Mott and Bailey for you, you see in real life, mm -hmm. happening all the time. Equity is another one. It's right. about equal access. No, it's not, right. it's about equal outcomes. But they say it's about equal access because they believe that under a total social constructivist thesis where nobody's different, even Kendi actually says this, it can't possibly be cultural differences. Mm. It can't possibly be cultural differences or anything to do with how people are raised or what they do or how they might you know, approach things. Can't possibly be that because that would be to say that the culture is wrong and right. that violates right. cultural relativism. Kendi actually says that cultural relativism is necessary for anti-racism because of that. Can't be something like that. 
It absolutely can't be. You're just saying, and he says this frequently, that if you're saying that there are different outcomes with equal access on the front end, then you're saying there's something wrong with those people, and he's implying essentially wrong with those people. Because it can't be the fact that the cultures either just don't match, which is one possibility. You know, you could be in a situation where, where you have great cultural values, but they don't match the circumstances you're in. Right. Or because the cultural values don't produce as great outcomes as others. Yeah, a simple value is punctuality. Are you punctual or not? Well, I even talked to a data scientist who did looked into this and you know, I think we talked about this once before is that if you start shifting like how you just he created a simulation. So I don't know how accurate a simulation is. Let's not get lost in models and all that discussion, but <laughs> he created a simulation where he just had a slider where he could, you know, people on average show up 1 minute late, 2 minutes late, 5 minutes late, 10 minutes late or whatever and he just tracked the 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 drop in productivity in a system where all of a sudden you have on average people showing up late and so schedules aren't as synchronized so punctuality is dropping out of the picture and what he saw is that the the productivity drops off precipitously very few a very small number of minutes and it just drops off and but within a, not very many minutes productivity drops to a, a, a kind of a floor not zero but very close to zero and so um you know, those values being different, just just the value of punctuality, which I don't know why we have to assign that to any particular identity group. Anybody can be punctual, just show up on time. Right. Uh, I don't like to show up on time. I run late all the time. I'm not, uh, yeah, I get it, right? But anybody can do this. Anybody can adhere to this value. Mm -hmm. And so, but Kendi utterly throws this out under their, their program. So he's talking about equal access under an assumption that equal access automatically will imply equal outcomes unless you're having racist assumptions Right. somewhere in between right right and so their game is to jimmy the system under a doctrine of creating equal access and they're going to keep messing with it mm. until you come out with equal outcomes right so we just saw i just saw today somebody sent me an article where a school system is now no longer if you do none of the work <laughs> nothing fail all your tests get zero credit right what grade should you get 50 percent why mm -hmm. for equity that's right. You get 50% credit. And we saw this with the when the pandemic began. They were trying to figure out what to do with kids who were taken out of schools. Well, what do we do with their grades? How do we figure out their grading assessment? And one of the proposed solutions was give everybody A's for equity. Why? Because the lower your GPA, the more an A raises it. And if you already have good grades, an A doesn't raise it as far. Mm -hmm. So it creates a more equitable outcome mm -hmm. by what? Changing the access somehow. To, to what grades mean, like now it's more accessible, everybody, but this is just creating um, equal outcomes in a very artificial way based on bad assumptions. So there's a Mott and Bailey with the word equity. We could do it with inclusion, we could do it with a lot more words, but you know, these are things that touch people's lives. I'll do inclusion actually, let me just go on a tear here for a minute, because inclusion properly upsets me. Because hmm. inclusion, yeah, we want people to sit around the table with, or the fire pit, I guess, with us. We want people to, we do want people to feel included. We don't, nobody wants to feel bad and very few people want to make other people feel bad as, as a matter of course, or even by uh, accident. People tend to be generally polite. I guess that's a cultural value that I would say is probably pro-social. People want other people to feel included. If you want a workplace, you want people to feel included right. because having psychological safety is crucial to creating the kinds of dynamics mm -hmm. where mentorship works, where teamwork uh, flourishes, where people are willing to be open about their ideas. John Cleese has a wonderful talk many years ago 
on YouTube about creativity. Mm -hmm. and he talks about how he and the Monty Python guys got back in a room and they yes. literally, you know, th they said, you know, throw throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. That's what they did. Right. And being totally creative, just the most off the wall stuff. And maybe 5% of it was good enough to make it to the flying circus or whatever. Right. But that's how you do it. And what you need to do that though is psychological safety. If you feel like you're gonna be judged, and that was John Cleese's point, it's not gonna work. You can't relax, you can't be creative, you can't connect. You're walking on eggshells, you hear a lot. So inclusion is something everybody wants. Well, there's your mot. We don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable. We don't want anybody to feel like they can't participate. Mm -hmm. We don't want anybody to feel like they're excluded. Mm -hmm. But the doctrine of inclusion relies on ideals like microaggressions and the willful, deliberate creation of hypersensitivity, of learning to spot problems where problems aren't, and then to blow those problems up to big, big problems without Making, making mountains out of molehills without offering like reliable ways to, to then mediate across those problems. All of a sudden it's, oh well, white people have white culture, black people have black culture, they can't actually understand each other, so now we have an intractable issue, <laughs> eggshells everywhere. You never know who's, if somebody's in the office is gonna blow up because now you have inclusive policies. Right. What inclusion actually means is nobody who's in a so-called protected group, and that's very important because it's not everybody, Nobody who's in a protected group is allowed to be offended and nothing in fact, whether it's speech codes or behavior, by, by speech codes or by behavior codes, anything that anybody, even the like most busybody, I hate to lean into a kind of unfair meme, but you know, middle class white woman wine mom might on behalf of somebody else as, right. a, as a white savior or whatever, find offensive on somebody else's behalf. I call that taking offense by proxy. Mm -hmm. You know, they get to find the offense for somebody else who wasn't even offended. An inclusive environment can have none of that. So you have a very stifled space. Mm. And it can go so far as to demand segregation. Mm. Because, the again, that structural determinism we talked about right. a moment ago. Well, in a structurally determinant white supremacist system, what does that mean? That means that the, the, the white supremacist system is everywhere. It's imminent. It's mm -hmm. all around us. It's everywhere always. There's no escape from it unless you create a willfully segregated space. So why do you have these black only or per people of color only uh, events and rooms and things cre being created for inclusion? Mm -hmm. A literal deliberate exclusion of certain people because it's believed that anywhere white people go and anywhere that the space hasn't been completely set up by and for some particular ethnic group, that white male gaze or the white gaze as it's sometimes called or the, 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 the white racial frame, some aspect of the white supremacist hegemony comes in with the white person and now all of a sudden that structural dynamic is being pressed upon the people of color. So they literally have to recreate segregated spaces under the term desegregation in order to Mm -hmm. escape from the structurally determinant forces that they believe shape society. Meanwhile, of course, like I said a minute ago, that's making them more hypersensitive, less able to cope with reality in a diverse, a genuinely diverse society mm -hmm. with actual differences and therefore hypersensitizing them so that the inclusion demand becomes more and more and more And what does that do to a workspace, let's say? If you're in a workspace, what oh, does it do? It's, it's like filling it with like bags and bags and bags of ice. Yep. It's, it's eggshells on the floor, ice right. everywhere. Everybody's afraid somebody's gonna call them out. Everybody's afraid to speak up. Everybody's afraid to be creative. Everybody's afraid to, to and there's evidence showing with teamwork and with uh, mentorship. Right. The people just hole up. 
Right. You start balkanizing your your uh, workplace. But then there's uh, there's another aspect to this ham-fisted idiocy. I've heard from probably hundreds. I was going to say thousands, but that's probably an exaggeration. I've heard from hundreds, I would say, either, and they're virtually yes. all, either brown, black, gay, or trans. Right. One of these categories who at their workplace, they ended up having a sensitivity training brought in by this ideology because somebody knew that right. they were there and this is what everybody has to do. And inclusion training is what it boils down to. Right. And what would happen is everybody would go around and have to like, because their, their methods are ridiculous, they'd have to confess, oh, I've always been, you know, I've always been a little bit racist. And, or I've always thought your, your, you gay people were a bit weird. How do you have sex? You know, you know, very awkward kinds of personal questions. And then, the whole place just gets real awkward now. It's like you just had this great relationship you thought with, with John at the office, and all of a sudden John just told you, you know, I've always kind of hated you because of your skin color just a little bit. And like, now you still got to work with this guy, right? <laughs> and this is, this is a disaster. There's nothing to say except that it's a disaster. And this is supposed to foster inclusion. Right. And we're supposed to, watching these things shatter corporate cultures or churches, or communities, or if you know whatever it is, uh, the community within an affinity, like you got your rock climbing club, your D and D group, or whatever. Right. Um, there's a little culture, a little you know, little social environment rises up there. Uh, that whole thing gets just wrecked because everybody's afraid somebody's going to get called out or something weird got injected in in the name of inclusion. Right. At the same time, there as well at the same time putting in training for microaggressions and microassaults and so forth so everybody is just ready for something. They're, They're looking, uh, yes. well, I mean, that's the point. Hypersensitivity. That's what critical, that's the point right. of critical theories. You're supposed to be finding those problematics where, you know, that's why you have to go to microaggressions. You have to be able to find those problematics where they exist. I always give that example of entering it, you know, two people, a white person and a black person enter a store at the same time. Right. Critical race theory would, you have to help somebody first. How does critical race theory analyze it? Well, racism must have taken place. A critical race theorist is the person who knows how to find it. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what the intentions were. It doesn't matter who's involved. It could be a white person. It could be Kanye West with his MAGA hat on. Who knows? And they come up and they try to help the customer and you have to pick white or black and you pick white and, oh, well, you think black people are second class citizens. You're racist. Or you pick black and it's, oh, you didn't trust them to be in your store. They have the magic power of finding the offense everywhere. And microaggressions take that to the most absurd level. Do you even know the story, by the way, of where microaggressions came from as a concept? No, I don't. Tell me. <laughs> so Daryl Wing Sue is the name behind this. And so Daryl Wing Sue, and I'll, I'll probably get the details a little bit. I haven't read it in a, in, in a hot minute, but I'll probably get some of the details. We can check it at some point. But the point is that he and I think another person of color were on an airplane. And they had one of those weight imbalance deals where they make you move around. I did hear this. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. So they make you move. Right. Because, you know, the plane is like tilted and it won't take off safely. I don't know, something. This has happened to me on, on a few flights, of course. It's happened to a, a lot of us. Well, sir, could you move to the, we needed somebody bigger in the front and somebody smaller in the back or whatever it is. You know, we got too many heavy people on the right side versus the left. You know, move around. It happens once in a while. Certain aircraft, it's worse than others. Right. So this happened on their flight. And it turned out that Daryl Wingsome and another person of color were the two people asked by the flight attendant to move. Right. And all of a sudden, this was racism. Oh, you pick people of color. And it was like, no, really, it's just the seats that you're in. Right. No, I perceived it as racist because it's just me and another person of color. That was a microaggression, whether you intended it or not. That's where the concept came from. That, right. was, that was the originating example mm -hmm. of a microaggression given. And it, it's, 
that's how ridiculous this is. Um, there's probably a Mott and Bailey here too. You know, I perceived it, that's, that's a Bailey. I perceived offense, therefore offense occurred. That's a Bailey. Well, the Mott is, well, you can't judge my feelings. You, you can't get inside my head to, you know, mm -hmm. nobody knows what's actually happening, which is total BS with these people, by the way, because they know your intentions. Right. Your intentions were racism. 100. The, the flight attendant, the poor flight attendant is like, no, really, you're just in the wrong chair. This is racism. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine being in that position before all, this was years and years ago, before any of this blew up. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, imagine you're just on your heels. You don't know what to do. You have to try to make this this person happy, and all this person is is a troublemaker. And then you put this in an environment like an office or a church or whatever. And some people around for for reasons of, you know, sometimes for like self interest, sometimes just because they're not thinking through things, just sometimes just because it creates an incentive. And incentives are like gravitational. They pull people. People do incentivized things. Now all of a sudden complaining and whining about everything and finding problems everywhere. Like, oh, this person gets their way all of a sudden. They just said it's racist, I get my way. And I've heard stories explicitly about that. You know, people, for example, in colleges failing their class and they're, they're not doing very well and they just start, they go to the dean and start crying and saying, well, I just can't get over how much racism I hear. And it's, oh, well, let's adjust your grade. Well, this create, and this, ha this has happened. This has happened. And then guess who's out? Whatever professor got, the professor, innocent probably, who got accused of racism, gone. Loses their job mm -hmm. so that some, some kid can get a better grade on a test or something. Right. Uh, absolutely nuke a career, but so that you can get your, your C turned into an A or your F turned into a C or whatever. And this creates an incentive and people will occasionally, especially the less scrupulous, which might be thoughtless and it might be, you know, actually, malicious isn't the right word, but you know, not scrupulous, will um, gravitate toward those incentives. So right. you put that into your company now. So now you're incentivizing, or your church, or your whatever, you're incentivizing mm -hmm. people to find and make make hay out of extraordinarily minor problems. Right. You think that's gonna make a charming workplace or a fun place for people to show up or want to participate or throw out a new creative idea or take a risk? Right, right. It's like. The whole thing, critical or theory. E or even order lunch for the group. No, kidding. <laughs> Are you kidding? Right. Like, all of a sudden, like, Crab Rangoon isn't, like, real Chinese food, or, but yes, it is where I come from, and I don't know, now there's an office meltdown. <laughs> right. Nobody wants to participate in this, this kind of thing. And this is, uh, these, these ideas have to be understood then. These Bailey ideas that are being shuttled in by these, oh, very nice, very good intention, oh, you know, we just want positions. Mm -hmm. These very bad ideas can't create anything except so except that they sow chaos and discord and enmity. Um, all they do is take your whatever value you have in a say a cultural group or a church or an office culture or yes. you know a company, and they spend down every last dime of you say social capital or whatever it is that you have or camaraderie that you have or team spirit or whatever. They just spend it right down so that the people that are most invested in pushing the ideology, not even the people who are grifting off of it, can advance the ideology further. It's horrible. Now, to, to kind of wrap up, what I, I know that you and I have discussed this before. If someone is faced with this kind of false dilemma or the, the Mott and Bailey or, or whatever the case may be, what would you say would be the best way to just simply answer someone who's playing this game with you. You have to call, it's the same thing almost as as, as uh, steal the Mott and bomb the Bailey. You have to call out the dynamic. And I know uh, and we've talked about 
my book with Peter Bergoshin, uh, How to Have Impossible Conversations. Well, in the mm. we talk about it briefly in that book, which had a different purpose. But there's another book we read called Difficult Conversations that mm. came out of the Harvard Negotiation Project. Douglas Stone, I think, is the lead author on that. Um, Stone, Heen, and Patton or something, and I don't remember which order. But this, this is a wonderful book, and it actually talks about when you have a communication breakdown, especially one that falls into these categories of it's no longer really a logical discussion. You have to take one step back from the conversation to a meta conversation and name the dynamic. And in this case, because often it's being pushed by some somebody who's a bit manipulative, you have to be able to name the dynamic very, very clearly and point out both sides of what's happening. You have to be able to identify if it's a Mott and Bailey, mm -hmm. here is your Mott, this is the argument you wanna make, here's how I can make it better, here's the thing that you're trying to do with it, this is a manipulation and it's not going to work here. You kinda of go, I don't mean to sound silly, but there's a little bit of going Gandalf on these people yeah. too. You know, you drive the stake down into the bridge mm. and you're like, you know, you shall not pass or whatever, but what you're actually saying is, I know this, and I, I mean this literally, you can actually say this, I know this manipulation and it doesn't work on me. Right. And then if pressed, you can name the manipulation. And if you can't, you need to practice. You need to get yourself where you can. And that diffuses it because now you've stepped back and named the dynamic. You've named the dynamic and now you're having a conversation about what's happening rather than being caught in the, the kind of alligator swamp where they're dragging you and enrolling you right, around. Right, say, well, I, I, wanna, I wanna listen to them and I, I wanna be reasonable and so forth, but what you're really doing is getting yourself sucked into this whole yeah, I mean, argumentation. The, the, I've, I've referred to it in the past as, as like a swamp with, with alligators right. in it. And the goal of the alligator is to pull you into the swamp and, and roll you. And once you're there, it's almost impossible to get out. You can't. Yeah. Right. Because it's now it's all emotional. Now the crowd is judging you based on how, you know, what you said. And every little thing you say is going to be, you know, examined with lawyerly intent for every possible guess. Remember, you know. You aren't allowed to guess their intentions, but they're allowed to guess yours. So right. everything you do has these bad intentions behind it. You're just trying to maintain your white Even comfort. if you're unconscious of them. Even if you're unconscious, your unconscious bias, yeah. Right. There's even one there, not to divert, but there is a there is a Mott and Bailey between implicit bias and unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. uh, implicit bias is some vaguely detectable nonsense mm -hmm. that is borderline pseudoscientific, but you know, there is data that it shows something, no one's quite sure what it shows. That's the important thing to take away. Unconscious bias, however, is just a new name for false consciousness. Right. Right. There's a Mott and Bailey there too. Right. Right. So what you're seeing is is that throughout it doesn't matter what affinity group they're part of or corporate or educational, whatever the case may be, is that you're seeing people that are being dragged into an argument instead of just calling it out. And I think we can see recently where so many have now come to their school board meetings or whatever the case may be and just called it straight out and said, stop the manipulation, I want this out. That's right. As opposed to thinking, oh, we just need to get into a long discussion and mm -hmm. so forth. Let's bring well, both sides to the table right. and hash it out. No, the other side doesn't want to hash it out. They want to survive the encounter by right. retreating into their survive mind. Survive the encounter. And the second the encounter's over, like, oh, well, let's hear the critical race theory side out. Oh, well, they just wanted, they said they just wanted racial sensitivity training. Wham, next thing you know, you know, America is a structurally racist and systemically racist country. Structural determinism is a part of, the, they don't right. say it in those words. This creates different outcomes. Oh, well, we better start segregating students again. They're going to go right back to it. Oh, your privilege is determinant of your position and your positionality in terms of the privilege hierarchy is going to mm -hmm. determine your range of possible outcomes in life. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to be right back to it. The goal, the goal of the Mott and Bailey strategy is to get in the Mott, survive the encounter, and go back to your, I mean, as, as the kids say, back on their bullshit. 
<laughs> and so now you're going further to the synthesis. Sure, if we put it right. in a dialectical term, every time this happens, typically what's happening, you know, it doesn't fit the Mott and Bailey as a castle metaphor, but typically what's happening is the whole thing is moving just a little bit. But really the Bailey's getting a little bit bigger. It takes right. a little bit more land every single time. And yep. so that's that kind of synthetic position that, that, that you would receive. You know, um, they, they're offering, they get offered a challenge and they spin the challenge around, they defend themselves and they come back out and now they've incorporated that synthetically into their new argument. And oh, the Bailey just got a little bit better because now this new white supremacist attack just came. And mm -hmm. so now we have to be on guard for yet, yet more white supremacy. And look how insidious it is. And so yes, over and over and over and over again. And this is, this is the thing that we sometimes, it gets called the, the ratchet. Mm -hmm. Like the ratchet only turns one direction and you know, a ratchet works by it turns and it clicks and it doesn't turn back. Right. And it clicks and it doesn't turn back. And so um, that's the way that this actually kind of goes. It, you know, they, they can take it a little further each mm -hmm. time. Uh, and if you press them, whoop, they hide in the mott. That's right. Survive the encounter. Wham, they're back out into their uh, bailey. I won't say it again. <laughs> yeah. But it's a good way to put it. Yep. It's a good way to put it. Oh, you know. The diversity trainer's back on her bullshit. Um, this is what's gonna happen the second you stop. You stop mm -hmm. paying attention and, and listen to their nonsense. Oh yeah, well we just wanted to have more voices, you know, more perspectives. You don't want more perspectives, you want specific perspectives that are informed by a so-called critical consciousness, which is the derivation of Marx's class consciousness taken into a new domain. It's not Marxism, it's not class consciousness, it's privilege consciousness is what what, what critical consciousness is really about. And that's all they want, is people who can articulate the problematics in that regard.